0: Namo Atasa Bhagavata Rahato Sama Sambhutasa Namo Atasa Bhagavata Rahato Sama Sambhutasa Namo Atasa Bhagavata Rahato Sama Sambhutasa Pudhamta Mangsa Gham Namah So one of the central teachings that differentiates um, Buddhist teachings from other religious teachings is the Four Noble Truths. So a lot of different philosophies have um, a lot of things in common. Um, The intention not to harm, the intention to live with integrity, with kindness, the value of generosity, the importance of faith and devotion, the importance of... um, not living for one's own self-interest. The importance of discipline, of meditative practices, of contemplation, of concentration. There are lots and lots and lots of things in common. But there are some differences, and so sometimes it's helpful not to just overlook the differences. So one of the characteristics of the Buddhist teachings which differentiates it from other religious teachings is the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths is not a kind of intellectual exercise. It's not a conceptual framework just to, with the intention of staying in knowledge. It's a reflection. So the difference between a reflection and a kind of map is that if you use a reflection reflectively, it can illuminate things which then allow a really radical shift in the perception. And conceptual frameworks—they can shift your thinking, but your thinking then needs to translate into the rest of the whole system. So the first noble truth is is that there's suffering, and this is a noble truth. It's not a a theoretical truth. It's not something that is going to change tomorrow, or is going to change when something shifts in our, in our culture or, or it's not going to change when it's noble it has existed since the beginning of time and the nobility of it is just that, that it's timeless it's part of the way that we are relating to circumstances and so the noble truth of it is is, is that there's suffering in physical pain and the discomfort that comes with that there's suffering that comes from Birth, of aging. You know, watching some members of my family and their struggle with aging, it's really quite sobering. How hard it is to just accept the kind of way things go and the fact that you don't have control over it. There's suffering in, for many people, there's suffering in the death process. There's suffering in having things that we don't want. So we can experience that when, you know, our body aches or our mind is not energetic and we want it to be energetic or we're feeling restless and we want to be still or, you know, um, we want to have clarity and we don't or we have a feeling about what awareness is but we don't see it so we want to see it we can't quite figure out how we can see it. and so, You know, there's all kinds of ways in which we can suffer about not having what we want. And then there's lots of ways when we can suffer about having things that we don't want. You know, having feelings we don't want, or thoughts we don't want, or memories that we don't want, or hungers that we don't want, longings, you know, a sense of emptiness, which is not the kind of luminous emptiness, it's a kind of vacuous, dry, desert, barren emptiness. Mm, We don't want that. We want to get rid of that so there's so many different ways in which we can reflect on suffering not as information but as related to our experience and even though there are many gateways to let the mind open up suffering is a pretty wide gateway there's a lot of people pass through the gateway of suffering it's not the only gateway but it's a it's a wide gateway lots of people pass through the gateway of suffering. So the first noble truth is, is that there is suffering, and the second noble truth is that there is a cause of suffering. And so the kind of essence of that is, is is that when we look at it in a really kind of very detailed way, we can see that the problem is not with what's actually happening the problem is with not wanting it to be happening. So you can see that, you know, if we've got a feeling that we don't want, you know, let's say we've got a kind of a deep-seated anger that's arising and it's really intensely unpleasant. It's burning our minds and our body feels tense and we feel a lot of heat. We don't want it. But when we look really carefully, we can see that the real problem is not the actual anger. The problem is the not wanting. So this whole thing about the desire being the basis of the problem is explained in a much more explicit way when we look at patichu samapada-dependent co-arising, which gives the map, the 12-linking map, of how it is that this desire comes to be and what happens when it's there. So it takes a second noble truth and goes into it in tremendous depth. And there's two basic ways of looking at the cycle of dependent origination. One way of looking at it is from the perspective of three consecutive lifetimes. And so in that perspective, we can see that the the body that we have now is the result of previous conditions that existed in a previous lifetime. So, the conditions that gave rise to birth in this lifetime were things that happened before. We have a body now, and in the body now, we can um, have all kinds of actions and uh, thoughts, and that can give rise to things in the present as well as things in the future. So it, it started in the in the past, we have a life now, and then the results can continue on in the future. Another way of looking at the cycle of dependent origination is as everything can be experienced in the moment, in one lifetime, in, in, in a... The whole cycle can be experienced in the arising of desire. And watching it the way the whole thing kind of pans out. And... The scriptures have references and suttas that validate validate both ways of looking at it. And, And, of course, you've got different scholars who say one way is right and the other way is right. And a few scholars say both ways are right. And this is naturally what happens when people have views and opinions about all kinds of things. So, I'm not saying this for you to take it on as a belief, but just to say that the scriptural references elucidate both as valid ways of looking at it and to figure out for yourself, you know, what makes sense. And what works for you in terms of your own, your own understanding. But if we look at it from the perspective of in one lifetime, or one kind of whole cycle, there's certain parts of the map that are hard to understand. So the first f- few linkings of it Awija Pachaya Sankara, ignorance conditions mental formations. Now, intuitively, this does not make any sense. How ignorance conditions mental formations and how mental formations conditions ignorance. But the first two links of the dependent origination is that ignorance conditions mental formations. And the way it is described is, is, is that the mental formations are also, conti- also conditioning ignorance. So it's like to something that's standing like this, where they're supporting each other. If you pull one away, the other falls. They need; they both need to be there in order for them to to happen. So the way I can understand it is that let's just take an example of this, okay? So this is a metal thermos flask, and it's very sweet, and it just came, and I was really delighted when it came because it kind of amazes me. You know, I sometimes I put things on the Donna list because I, I need them, but I don't expect anybody really reads the Donna list So somebody came to a teaching I was doing in L.A. and had this as a gift, and I was, like, flabbergasted. She went to the Donnellist, she read the Donna list, she saw that I needed a thermos flask, and she brought it. So my association with this is like sweet joy. You know, it's just like unexpected, very sweet joy. So that's my perception. That's my association. I look at this and I have a very sweet feeling. Okay. Now somebody else might look at this and see gray. You know. Or somebody else might look at this and feel terrified. Because, you know, they saw somebody take something like this and crack somebody over the skull with it and their skull broke open. Okay. so if we take the example of somebody who have you seen this being used as a weapon before their mental formation of the experience of it being used as a weapon then conditions their way of thinking so that when they see this again, what gives rise is this experience of, of real deep fear okay, so there isn't anything in this which is inherently frightening. Okay? By itself it can't do anything. It just sits there. But the association with this is, is that it was used as a weapon and the results were really, you know, quite devastating. So sankara conditions the inability to see the actual nature of what this is. Which is is that it's doesn't have any volition on its own, it can't act independently of somebody picking it up and using it, that it isn't anything inherently fearful by itself. Okay, so the fear element that got imprinted with the memory then conditions the inability to see this for clearly for what it is. And so you see it and the immediate experience is terror. So if we look at this a little bit more, it seems like that's a flash the immediate experience of saying this is terror. But if we unpack it a little bit more, the previous memory of having seen this thing be used as a weapon conditions the inability to see it clearly for now what it is. The salayatana is the sense basis are conditioned by the com the combination of the ignorance and this and the mental formations. Okay? So the, it's like the eye is already prepped for seeing it in the wrong way. And then, because we're already prepped to seeing it in the wrong way, when you see the shape and the color and the size and all the rest of that, that gives rise to contact. The feeling experience of that, the Vedana, is intensely unpleasant. And the unpleasant feeling gives rise to a sense of, a kind of a formation of a sense of, you know the the initial experiences is a, is a is a negative reaction, which then follows on with an intense feeling of fear. Okay, the fear in relationship to seeing this then causes a whole cascade of other reactions, and it's almost as if our mind and body is born into the fear. Okay, we believe it that this is correct. We're born into the fear, and and then what happens as the result of that is, is that there's a, a kind of like a response mechanism in the body, which is no longer volitional. It's like a the snowball has been topped off the mountaintop; it's rolling down the hill. And what you have is sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Okay. And all that's happened is they they've seen the cup. Okay, that's all. That's all that. That's what's happened is they they've seen the cup. All right. So. In a situation where a person is practicing, and in that kind of a situation, they have some, probably some trauma skills to work with, they see the cu- initial experience is terror, okay? And then what they need to do is to um, titrate the terror with discernment and something still in their body of saying, well, it doesn't appear like I'm going to take this cup and I'm going to smash somebody over the head with it. Okay? There doesn't so the discernment will then go back and forth between this is a terrifying thing that's happening right now to well let's check it out and see if this is a terrifying thing that's happening right now. And you can't do that unless you have some basis for it. And so the meditation practice gives you a basis of you know refuge, of mindfulness, of clarity, of insight, a place in your body that is still, that's calm, that's quiet, that you can return to. And so we can go to those places and just check it out and see, all right, I'm experiencing a lot of fear, but is this fear grounded in something that's happening in the present? Or is this fear something that is happening as a result of a memory that got triggered about something that I observed in the past? Okay? So the discernment goes into the body, uses the pleasant sensations that are there in order to calm down the agitation enough to be able to check out, is this really scary? Okay? Now, if a person is skilled at this, which you can be either from meditation or from doing trauma work, they can come to the place where they can recognize, I feel fear, but there's no basis for it right now. So then a person is dealing with the experience of fear, the mental formation of fear, okay? But they are aware of the fact that the fear is related to the memory that was activated by the cup. It's not caused by the cup. The cup is a trigger rather than a cause. And then when they can see that the cup is a trigger rather than a cause, then they can work with their own activation in a way which is suitable and skillful. All right? So, they're still looking at the cup, and they're still seeing form and shape and color, and the Vedana associated with the cup is oscillating back and forth between the neutral feeling of the cup and the unpleasant feeling of the fear associated with the past memory of how it was used. When the neutral feeling of this cup then is able to balance the past feeling of fear about how it was used, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, forth then one can see the problem is not the cup. It's not in the cup. It's in this memory of how the cup was used. And then all the other things about the memory and what happened and who it was and how damaged the person was and how much blood there was and what kind of a drama there was to get them stitched up or fixed up or whatever, you know, whatever is going on. One is not focusing it on this cup and then the person who's holding the cup one's attending inwardly to one's own internal process. When one is attending inwardly to one's own internal process with skillfulness, with mindfulness, with clarity, with kindness, with compassion, then the whole thing begins to unravel. and the nervous system begins to calm down and the whole system begins to settle and one begins to release the trauma response related to the past experience. So, in this situation, when one is doing that, there's contact. I seize this. There's Vedana. The Vedana is moving back and forth between the neutral experience and the fearful experience, the unpleasant experience. The neutral experience is indicating that this itself is not a problem, and the fearful experience is, is agitating the memories of what happened before. The neutral experience is saying, it's safe now. The memories in the past are saying, I'm still freaked out about what it all happened. Okay. The neutral experience is saying, well, you can work with it now because you're not in danger, and nobody's in danger right now. The fearful experience is is discharging the kind of memory and the energy and the stored-up experience of what happened in the past. The neutral experience is saying, you don't need to worry. You don't need to... This does not need to be a problem. The fearful experience is beginning to calm down. Beginning to settle down. Beginning to relax. Beginning to not be so agitated. When there isn't the agitation, there isn't the kind of birth into trying to figure out what to do with all of this. In the aspects, in the absence of the desire to try and do something with all of this, there is no birth. In the absence of birth, there is no sorrow, lamentation. There's no aging, sickness, death, and then sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. So that when one can unravel a kind of. a neurological response that's embedded in your system as a result of a memory of something that happened in the past you can come back into stillness and to peace if we are not able to do that then we see this we freak out we run out the door or we scream or we do something like that because we are thinking that there's something really scary that's happening so this happens all of the time now it's not so often that we actually look at a cup and we see that somebody's bashed it over somebody else's head But we see somebody, we don't see them. We see the image of something that happened to us 10 years ago, or 15 years ago, or 20 years ago. They remind us of that. We're not tracking our own internal mechanisms. And so all of a sudden we have this very strong emotional reaction. We're convinced it's about that person has nothing to do with them. Nothing to do with them. They've triggered something that was a memory or some kind of a thing that happened in the past. We're reacting as if it's current, present time, and it's not. So dependent origination is about unpacking this whole cycle and so that there's a sense of what's actually happening right now. What's, what's actually happening right now? Now, in this case, with the cop and the reaction to it, it takes a fair amount of sophistication and real precision with clarity to recognize there's a memory that's being triggered from the past, and yet right now it's actually not an issue. To be able to do both of those things takes a tremendous amount of precision, skillfulness, clarity and the ability to track one's own internal mechanisms. Because usually what happens is the whole thing is a blur. You have no idea what's going on, except for the fact that you feel totally freaked out. And it has something to do with this. And there isn't the tracking of what's gone on, you know. So the dependent origination is a map that unpacks the whole thing, so that we can begin to look and see, well, what's what? what's actually going on here? Is this actually something that I need to be frightened about or not? When the mental formations that were kind of fixed into the system, conditioning ignorance as a result of the unreleased trauma about that, are released, when the trauma is released, you can see this. And either... Crack the fear response, or not have a fear response. You know. So one of the things that was sweet. Did you hear the bear story, the second bear story about what happened in the garden of the gods? Yeah. So somebody was saying, "Wow, that's amazing that you could be, you could not be afraid after the last time you had an experience with the bear." And I, well, that's the result of meditation. You know that's actually a result of 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 unpacking any accumulation that is there around uh, unpleasant experiences. That's what happens. That's what that's what you do. You unpack it so that this this other experience of the bear also coming right up to my face, I, I didn't experience fear. You know, I didn't experience fear. So. That's patichu samapada. That's the dependent co-origination. That is the cycle. And that's how it can be tricky to watch it, and also phenomenally liberating when we get a sense of how it's actually working so that we can track the mechanisms of what's going on. Now, once we're born, it's like you know the snowball is over the side of the mountain, and it's just a question of time before there's aging, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, limitation, and despair. I mean, it's sort of like that comes with the package. So once there's birth, all of those things follow, okay? However, this kind of birth is not the birth of a body. This is the birth of a mind state. This is being born into fear, being born into wanting, being born into the idea that I have to fix it, being born into, I need to get my cup of coffee, being born into, you know, when am I going to have apple pie? you know being born into you know i need a new computer it's not the birth of another person it's the birth of conforming an idea about a, about a something that needs to happen and completely investing one's energy into it that that's actually what needs to happen now from the perspective of meditation and mindfulness we can also see that birth is not a problem Birth is birth. Aging is not a problem. Aging is aging. Sickness is not a problem. Sickness is sickness. And death is not a problem. It's just death. So from that perspective, when we reinvest in the present moment, present response experience with life, then we can can undermine or take out the kingpin of desire that keeps the whole thing cycling. So that's the place for most of us where we can cut the cycle is with that desire. Okay? So we can notice that, you know, we want an apple, right? And then we can discern is it the right time to eat the apple? Is it actually good for me to eat the apple? And if it's the right time to eat the apple and if it's it's good for me to eat the apple, I can eat the apple and be very attentive to eating the apple. And there doesn't need to be any suffering. I can eat the apple and there's no suffering. Even though from one perspective you would say that by deciding to eat the apple you're born into that action. But when there's mindfulness present very clear there's no suffering. There's no there's eating the apple but there isn't the kind of hungering after the apple to be the thing that's going to make us okay. That's the place where there's suffering. Not just in eating the apple. So, let's say you have an idea. You want to get a PhD. So you research places where you can get a PhD, and you find a place to get a PhD. And it takes an awful lot of work to do a PhD, to do the research and to pull together the thesis and to defend the thesis, and all of the everything that's needed takes an awful lot of work. And so one can do it from the perspective of being born into it, that that's who one's identity is, and one's completely wrapped up in that as an identity. Or you can just do it as, well, yeah, this is a suitable thing. It's helpful for my life career goals. It actually will be a good discipline for me to do this. It's challenging for me. And all these ways that I can actually learn from. And every moment, respond to everything that's arising with a present moment, present response situation. And even though you still have to do the research and you still have to fly to the different places to collect it and you still have to collate it and you still have to do the dissertation and you still have to defend it, you know, at every step of the way, when there isn't the kind of being born into it, then there's no suffering. And you get tired and there's too much information and, that you know, it takes a while to unprocess and that's the natural result of doing all of that and there's no suffering with any of it. It's what's happening. One is attending to where one's at, When one's at. When it's the kind of process of, of, of resting and recuperation afterwards, one's attending to that. There's no suffering. It's just with what's happening every step of the way. There's no asking it to be different or hoping it was otherwise, or locating oneself in any of it. It's just one is bringing attention to the process wholeheartedly, Attending as best as one can to what needs to happen. End of story. No more story. There's no story. So the de a dependent origination, doesn't mean that we all have to, you know, give away everything and abandon our lives and give up our relationships and wander into some cave somewhere and shave our head and wear robes and not have a cell phone. You know, because somehow that is the path the path is actually related to the way desire is operating in the present moment. And so when we understand that, we can live our lives where we're not acting from desire in the way that we have in the past. And so we can bring a kind of wholehearted presence to the present moment without the kingpin of desire conditioning how we experience things, how it works, what's going to happen next. But it means that constantly we're also having to question what's what. So when our memories bring forward a sense of, oh, this is impossible, or this is scary, or I can't do it, or I'm hopeless, or whatever it is that comes up, because our memories are conditioned based on all kinds of things that happened in the past, and it comes up in the present, it stimulates our sense organs to perceive the world according to the memory that we're processing we're not actually getting a true reading on what's happening. And I'm I'm sure you've experienced this. You know, you could be in a group of people and somebody says something and there's, I don't know, half a dozen people in the room and they all hear different things. Because everyone has heard it through their own perceptions and conditioning and memory and stuff that got filtered. And so one person can say the same thing and you can have completely different takes on what it meant, what their point was, what their motivation was. I mean, it's really quite amazing, because as long as we are operating from our conditioning, we're not reading things accurately. And so when we're able to see conditioning for conditioning, and let the ignorance quality be less what is informing our sense bases then our sense bases have more capacity to read things more accurately. So, Patichi Samapada describes how the cycle goes around and around and around and around and around, because when ignorance conditions um, sense bases, I mean mental formations, and that conglomerate condi- conditions our sense bases to then perceive the world according to our past perceptions, it's a setup for suffering. It's set up for suffering. It's designed to cause suffering. It is imprinted in the system that we will suffer. And so we go through the whole cycle where we feel desire, we like it, we hate it, we want it, we want to get rid of it. And then we're born into that. You know, I've got to get it. You know, I need to have it. I've got to get rid of it. And then we get totally invested in our feeling. And then we do what we do, which is a birth of sorts. The birth conditions aging, where we have to come to terms with the consequences of what we've done. And then eventually there's a disillusion of whatever it is that we're having to contend with, which is a kind of a small little death, which gives rise to sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. It's a setup for suffering absolutely set up for it. So when we're faced with suffering we have two choices. Either we can sink our teeth back into ignorance and fly back into the wheel of samsara once again because that has been what we've been doing for millennia that is what we you know that's what we know when we suffer then to try and get what we want so we don't suffer to try and get rid of what we don't want so we don't suffer we sink our teeth back into it with like absolute conviction or we say maybe there's another way so suffering is the cause for either more suffering or the path that leads to the end of suffering where we say you know I've done this a hundred thousand million times it has never ever once brought me out of suffering Not once has it actually ended the cycle. There has got to be a way that does end the cycle. What in suffering? So then there can be a sense, okay, there might be a way out of suffering by not following the desire in the way that I had been following it in the past. What does that look like? How is it that I can live my life and not follow desire? You know, of course I want things, and of course I don't want things. That's totally natural. How is it that you can want, and not want, and not suffer? And so that's where the discernment comes in, about when is it that the wanting is coming from ignorance, and when is it that the wanting is coming from another place? So, we're people, we have bodies, we get hungry. We need to eat. It's natural. When we're eating our food, is it to satisfy our hunger? Is it to satisfy our loneliness? Is it to satisfy our boredom? Is it to satisfy our restlessness? When we're eating to satisfy our hunger, is there suffering? When we're eating to satisfy our loneliness, is it suffering? So when we eat because we're hungry, it has a different effect than when we eat because we're bored or we're lonely or we're restless, or we don't know who we are, so we eat because we want to fill our feeling of sense contact up so that we don't have to deal with the feeling of not knowing who we are and how uncomfortable that feels. So when we use food for different reasons other than just to satisfy our physical hunger, then it causes other things in the system that have to be then processed. It causes suffering. So if we eat when we're hungry, there doesn't have to be any suffering in that. When we sleep when we're tired, there doesn't have to be any suffering in that. You have to get the mail, you have to do the washing, you have to clean the toilet, you have to go grocery shopping, you have to cook. There doesn't have to be any suffering in any of that. But if while we're cooking, we want to be washing, and if when we're washing, we want to be riding our bike, and if when we're riding our bike, we want to be inside warm, and if when we're inside warm, we want to be in a place, you know, it's like there's never a place where we're not suffering. The whole thing is suffering. So when we come back to the practice of just being mindful with what's actually arising, when we come back to the first foundation of mindfulness, of awareness of the body, you know, there's many different exercises, meditation practices of being aware of the body. You know, being aware of our posture, you know, just feeling our alignment, feeling our the level of relaxation, feeling the way we are with gravity or against gravity. Now, when we're aligned and with gravity, then it takes very little effort to stay upright. When we're against gravity, then it's a battle to stay upright. So even in something like the posture, sitting posture, or the standing posture, or walking posture, when we pay attention to our alignment, then we can move out of the suffering of battling gravity into a place of being relaxed and aligned there's less suffering. When we can understand what it feels like to be relaxed and not suffer in our relationship with gravity, that actually creates a foundation where we can understand how to do that with other things in our mind. We can't make a magic wand and make gravity go away. It's here. But we can battle it or we can align with it so that it takes as little amount of effort as possible in order to actually navigate walking When there's little effort, there's little resistance, there's little stress. When there's little resistance, there's little stress, there's more relaxation. When there's more relaxation, then the mind can settle more comfortably in the body. We can feel what we're feeling. So when we're constantly battling gravity, our body's tense. And when our body's tense, it's hard to feel some of the more subtle things that are going on. So the practice of being attentive to the body, the first foundation of mindfulness, grounds us so that we can slow down and begin to see what's what. And to begin to take some of the suffering out of our lives that doesn't have to be there. We don't have to battle gravity. We can find a sense of easefulness in walking and sitting. Sitting on rocks, leaning against trees, walking on the sand. We can feel the easefulness in the contact with the earth when we stop battling gravity so these simple practices of bringing our attention back into the present moment are our way of unraveling the whole kind of cycle you know of trying to be in three different places at once being one place at once just walk just sit just stand just lie down just rest just rest I feel like just to rest. Is it okay just to rest? So the precision of the ability to bring attention to what's happening and to sustain attention with what's happening, and then the ability to release the grasping of wanting it to be different, or somehow pushing on it to try and control it or influence it or shape it, This movement in meditation, which is fundamental to meditation, it's fundamental to all of the meditation exercises, is really pivotal in dismantling the cycle of suffering. So, a lot of the times we get habituated in seeing everything that's wrong. It's part of the way our attention is focused. It's part of the... the, um, the, the feature of living in a postmodern world where our 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 cognitive functions are highly um, sensitized to just dis- to something that's out of order, you know. So there can be something a whole huge beautiful landscape, and I see the cigarette butt, you know. I, I don't suffer about it, but I'll see it and I'll pick it up. You know, and so we can have a whole body that is mostly feeling balanced and peaceful and relaxed and there's one small thing that's a little bit tight and it's like that completely consumes our attention. So we can use that in order to relax there or we can use that in order to obsess there. So when there's a moment of letting go, a moment of unraveling, a moment of a breath where there wasn't any wanting or not wanting, There was attention and there was presence and there was clarity. There was no wanting and there was no wanting. That is something to really relish, enjoy, celebrate. That is something to make a lot out of. One breath. One footstep. One ability to relax. Just to fully relax. And just to really enjoy what it is to fully relax. Or to drink a cup of tea and and to enjoy the taste of the tea. Or to feel the weight of the cup in your hand. Without wanting it to be different. Without wanting to hold on to it. Just with what is. So these moments, these drops, these footsteps, these breaths, these ability to lean against the tree and let the tree support you, let the rock support you, to drop. To just drop. You know, drop having to carry it and figure it out and trying to make it okay, trying to do anything, just drop. And from that very relaxed place, then see... Is there effort that needs to be cultivated? And where? Not to try and get, and not to try and get rid of. But because that's a path. That's a path out of suffering. And it works. Because that's what we can do in the present moment, is bring attention and effort in the right way to what's arising. One breath where there's no wanting and no wanting is a celebration. One footstep where we feel our weight connecting to the earth without any expectation that it's otherwise. It's a joy. It's a peace. It's a blessing. One moment when we put on our hat when it's cold just because that's what needs to happen present With the sensations clear, there is no suffering. So we understand and look at the four noble truths, not so that we can become masters at finding suffering so that we can see the ending of suffering realize the ending of suffering experience the ending of suffering know the ending of suffering and what it feels like to live life without wanting and without not wanting present, attentive, responsive clear, kind